Thank you, Lauren. <clears throat> well, Christ is risen. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm one of the pastors on staff with Pastor Jade and Pastor Christy. And uh, last week, I was right over there. Many of you do not know me yet. So you will learn that a lot of us on the team do lots of different things. So once in a while, I'm leading worship, and once in a while, I'll be preaching. And I can't wait to get to know so many of you from Austin Bluffs Church and other guests that we have with us today. Our hope is that this community is a hospitable, welcoming community because this is not our church. As Pastor Jade spent the whole Sunday last week saying, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And we hold it with open hands. We hold all of you with open hands. And we hope that you will find that they are warm hands, okay? I don't know, dumb joke. <clears throat> I wanna make two comments on those announcements. Lauren had a lot. We, we actually distilled the announcements. That was the distilled version. But two comments. One, next week is Easter Sunday. And to be very clear, the service times are 9 and 11, and there is a light brunch in between. The aim of this brunch is not like the brunch at the Broadmoor to fill you up for the whole day, okay? So come hungry, but, but come mildly hungry. Don't come famished, all right? The aim of this brunch is to provide a space with something not awkward to do for you to engage with one another, particularly those who are coming at 9 and coming at 11. And please invite your friends. Bring your, invite your neighbors. Bring your family members, whoever. Just start inviting people because this is a great community. Jesus Christ will be proclaimed as Lord and King, and there's going to be a light brunch. So what do you got to lose, all right? The second thing is I want to say a subtle apology to those whose faces were on the legacy ministry announcement. Uh, this is mostly for George Colflesh, that I am saying, I am sorry that your picture was up there because I know he's going to come up to me after and say, why did you pick my picture? And Mrs. Val, we already talked about it this week. But we had to put some pictures up there or else nobody would actually admit to being over 65, okay? <laughs> so we had to pick some people with whom I felt comfortable asking for forgiveness rather than permission. So thank you. I apologize. It's going to be an amazing ministry. Marty and Mary are heading it up. Mike Mahoney is assisting. And we're looking for what God is going to be doing in our 60s. I might show up, okay? I ain't 65, but me and Pastor Jade need all the wisdom we can get. <laughs> So Seth did an incredible job of setting up Palm Sunday today. I'm going to elaborate just a little bit, but how many of you were raised in churches that celebrated Palm Sunday or observed Palm Sunday? Awesome. That is fantastic. So I was raised in the 90s, the late 80s and the 90s in a more traditional Pentecostal Assemblies of God church. Now, a lot of Assemblies of God churches are essentially, they're, they're like evangelical churches with tongues. But I grew up in the kind where, um, where every, almost every Sunday morning in a, in a fairly large AG church, we had tongues and interpretation. Every Sunday night was a baptism of the Holy Spirit and healing service. I mean, we were thoroughbreds in the Pentecostal world. And I am also grateful that we did observe Palm Sunday. It was one of my fondest memories as a kid. You know, we would also have um, pageants or, or what do we call them, uh, cantatas for Easter the following week. But Palm Sunday was fun because they just let the kids loose with those palm branches. And I grew up in Florida. 
where palm branches were plentiful. And uh, I'm so sorry, Seth, and for all the custodians, but we had a blast. So one of the things I'm really grateful for is that I grew up knowing about Palm Sunday. And a number of years ago, um, our community went through a season where we were exploring the ancient historic church and the wisdom that is offered to us from those who are our Christian forefathers, those who have handed us the tradition of the Christian faith. And one of the things that we learned was that there are more holidays in the the Christian faith than just Christmas Eve and Christmas and Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. Now, there are actually all kinds of holidays. Actually, almost every Sunday is a holy day in some tradition or or another from the Roman Catholic tradition or Eastern Orthodox or the Anglicans. But we delved into this and discovered that there is so much wisdom if we can participate with the church calendar. And I'm not going to go too much into this. That, that would be laborious for this morning. But the church calendar is a way of keeping time with the church. As God's people, one of the things that we're saying when we participate with Christian seasons is that the world doesn't govern our time. God is the Lord even of our time. What we celebrate, what we give our time to, how we mark time, how we observe time. And so the Christian New Year begins with Advent, which is the season of four weeks leading up to Christmas. And the emphasis in that season is anticipation. Anticipation of the second coming of Christ, for which we still await. Anticipation of Christmas, where we're going back in solidarity with our forefathers and saying, What would it have been like to live in 400 years of silence, waiting on the voice of the Lord to break through? So, in that season, we celebrate this waiting and anticipating. Then we have Christmas, where we celebrate the coming of Christ. And then there is Epiphany, which is the revelation not just of Jesus, but of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we come into this season of Lent. Now, Lent was kind of a dirty word growing up, Um, it, it was more or less just an unspoken word. And we didn't speak about it because primarily it was something that the Catholics did. And we didn't cast stones, but we, we really had not much to do with the season of Lent. And as I've begun to read and to listen to voices that are much wiser and older than myself, I have come to see, and Pastor Jade has come to see, that there is actually a great bit of, wis- of wisdom. Excuse me. Josh, mute me for one second. I'm going to cough, and I don't want Unmute, maestro, thank you. (laughs) Ah. That Lent is the season that we prepare to walk with Jesus to his cross. And it's not the most fun thing, but it is one of the most important things that we can partner with Jesus and the power of the Spirit and the church. Oh, thank you, my good sir. So many awes. That that was sweet, Pastor Jade. (laughs) He's such a sweet young man. But Lent reminds us of our sinfulness. Lent reminds us of our dependence, that though we feel independent sometimes, truly every breath that we have comes from God. Lent remind us of our finitude or our finiteness, that from dust we come and to dust we will return. 
And Lent reminds us of our inevitable death because we are human and we are fallen. But Lent also reminds us that our death is not the end. And that brings us to Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, the entrance into Holy Week, where we observe Jesus as he proceeds from the Galilean area down to Jerusalem, knowing all of what awaits him in the city of Jerusalem and outside the city walls on that hill called Golgotha. Holy Week is by far the most important week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So he arrives in Jerusalem announcing his kingship, Then in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he moves right to cleansing the temple. What an odd thing. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Then there's that funny story where he curses the fig tree. Then we see Jesus having Passover with his disciples, which then turns into what we know as the Last Supper. Then Jesus is brought before Pilate. He is tried. He is crucified. He is buried. And then on the third day, he is resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things happen in this last week of Jesus' life. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21? We're going to read the first verse, the first 11 verses in Matthew 21. And then we're going to have what I think is a really simple Palm Sunday message. Let's begin in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to, funny enough, this is actually pronounced Bethphage. I've been saying that wrong for many, many years. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's, that's a funny image. Jesus is riding two animals at once. That's really odd. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's just a little liturgical addition that reminds us that these words are not frivolous words, that these are holy words, and that they are to be to us shaping and forming and that God is speaking through them. So when we read the words, we say, thanks be to God, because this is a gift to us. That was just a little note for those of you who are not used to saying, thanks be to God, after reading the scriptures. So Palm Sunday, what is Palm Sunday all about? Well, a couple of things. One, we see these branches. Seth talked to us about branches a minute ago. The branches were not just to keep the dust off the donkey's feet, okay? The branches were actually a sign of flourishing in a new age, So this would have been something that was customary 
For when a king came into town after winning a victory, or when a new king came into town replacing an old king, saying, things are about to change. It's a, it's a sign that marks a revolutionary period, that things are changing in a way for the better, for the good. So these branches that they're laying before Jesus is a way of saying, Jesus, we know that you are the one who God has sent to change things on our behalf. The Jewish people are living here in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is oppressed by Rome. So the Romans have their thumb on them, and at different times of the year, they release it a little bit, and they make them feel like, you're, you're free. But then you look around, and you see Roman guards walking around everywhere, and it's like, we're, we're not actually free. And then there are times during these high holy days where the Romans actually press in on their power a lot more, and they exert their control over the Jewish people. So these Jewish people are ready for something to change. And when Jesus approaches the city, they lay these palm branches down saying, Jesus, you're the one that we're putting our faith in to usher in something new because this has got to change. So then what's up with this cult, this foal, which Matthew does in a funny way. It seems like Jesus is writing both of them. I don't think that's actually what he intends. Jesus is probably riding the donkey and the foal of the donkey is trailing behind But what this signifies is when a king would return from battle being victorious, the king would leave on his war horse but come back into the city on a donkey, signifying that the battle has been won and we no longer need the war horses. We've left the war horses out where war was, but now we're returning with peace, bringing peace back into the city. So these were not arbitrary signs to the people. They would have been familiar with what they meant. And they also would have been very familiar with the prophecies that are being fulfilled. One of those is in Zechariah, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But before we do, I want to talk about how this week, the people, we've all, most of us, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard these sermons about the same people who cried Hosanna a few days later cried crucify him. There may be some truth to that, there may not be. But what is true is that they knew that Jesus was coming to be the deliverer. And what is also true is that they didn't know much else. They didn't really know who Jesus was. They certainly didn't know how Jesus was going to bring about salvation and how he was going to deliver the people. I was thinking about this last night. I was trying to walk through the message and pray through the message. And this theme of surprises kept coming back to me. I want you to think, have you been surprised in a good way in your life? As we were down here in worship, this will tell you how spiritual I am. One of these thoughts popped into my mind. You know how every year leading up to Christmas, the Lexus commercials And the Mercedes commercials show the wife surprising the husband with a brand new $100,000 vehicle. What a wonderful surprise that comes with a $1,200 a month payment, right? What an incredible surprise. Thank you so much, honey. That was fantastic. But I remember my 16th birthday was a surprise birthday party. And it was especially meaningful to me. Because about a week after my birthday, we were going to be moving cities. And that was one of the most beautiful surprises I remember. I was then, then my mind goes to thinking about 
movies with plot twists at the very end that when you realize what's happened, it changes everything that has happened prior. Movies like, think about Star Wars. When we find out that, by the way, this is spoiler alert alert from 25 years ago, okay? So I don't feel bad, maybe longer. But when we find out that Darth Vader is actually Luke Skywalker's dad, I know, I know. Guys, yet another reason to bring your friends to church. They'll get educated in all kinds of pop culture. I mean, it's just beautiful. And then there are movies like The Sixth Sense where you find out, well, I'm not going to tell you because somebody may not know, but when you find out this reality, it changes everything that has happened before. And so many of us, we're so familiar with the story of what happens on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday and on Resurrection Sunday that the surprise of it all is lost on us because we know the story so well. What they got right was that Jesus was coming to save them, but not how they expected or anticipated. Jesus' whole life was an unanticipated surprise. But this week that we are now entering into is full of all kinds of surprises and not just the surprise of the resurrection. I want to start by naming a surprise that is going, you're going to hear this and you're going to go, what's so surprising about that? The first surprise is Jesus is the surprise of God coming to us. Jesus is the surprise of God coming to us. What these people knew was that Jesus was sent by God as a deliverer, as a conqueror, in the line of David. What they didn't know was that Jesus was actually God himself. This is the surprise. And this is why Jesus is always in trouble with the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. Because Jesus is not acting like a prophet. He's acting like he is actually God. And that's why they want to kill him when he talks about Sabbath and when he talks about giving and when he talks about the least of these because he talks about these things with the authority of none other than God himself. They were expecting a prophet like Elijah, a king like David, and Jesus comes as the divine one, the one who is fully God and fully man. This was a surprise. And when they realized it, Just like at the ends of those movies, it changed everything when they looked back on his life. Now it makes sense. But it doesn't make sense even in this moment on Palm Sunday yet. It doesn't make sense. They're thinking that he is David, not that he is God who has taken on flesh. And when you realize that God has taken on flesh, his coming to us makes all the difference in the world. Because God could have saved us another way. God could have sent a deliverer. God could have sent a conqueror. But God cares so much about you and about your experience that the Son of God took on flesh and came, and as Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood to experience what it's like to be a human being. Because as the great saint, St. Gregory of Nis- uh, uh, Gregory said, what is not assumed cannot be healed. So Jesus takes on our flesh 
to assume the whole of the human experience that by him taking it on, he heals what it is to be human. That when we're sad, when we're suffering, when we're in pain, it doesn't just mean nothing. It's not just arbitrarily negative things happening to us. But because Jesus suffered, and Jesus is God, and Jesus suffered as a human being, now it's possible for the life of God to flow through us in our suffering. This is why it's good news that Jesus is God, and Jesus came to us. That he didn't just do something for us from heaven, but Jesus came and lived among us. Jesus knows what it's like to get a splinter, y'all. They didn't have paper back then, really, not the kind of paper we have, but Jesus knows what it's like to get a paper cut and want to curse under your breath. Jesus knows what it's like to be human. Jesus identifies with us, and that is a surprise, that Jesus is God coming to us. The good news isn't that God made it possible for us to come back home. The good news is that he came to make his home in us. And there is a world of difference between the two. If you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Philippians twice this morning. Same chapter. But we're going to read verses 12 and 13 together right now. Well, don't read it aloud. Read it quietly. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not only in my presence... But now, how much more in my absence? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, pause. It sounds like there is a way of hearing this where Paul is saying, God has done this for you and made it possible. Now, go and work it out so that when Jesus returns, you will be found faithful. But if we keep reading, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Not only did God make it possible, but God is the one who is giving you the will, the energy, the self-control, the awareness, the intuition, the revelation. All of it is initiated by God. So us even being able to work out our own salvation is only possible because God initiates at every step along the way. Amen? Amen. I was anticipating you, Miss Connie, right here in the front. Shout me down. Number two, what's the second surprise? The second surprise is that Jesus confounds us by coming as a humble king. Now, I don't know that you know this, but that's an oxymoron. Most of us did not grow up in countries with kings, but let me just tell you, it is unlikely that one becomes king And definitely that one stays king if you are humble. If you act humbly, your kingdom will not last very long, typically speaking. So it is a surprise that when they welcome Jesus in that whole week leading up to his crucifixion, they are confounded by the way that he doesn't defend himself the way that he doesn't play mind games with Caiaphas and with Pilate. And Jesus is seemingly just comfortable being in his own skin, the beloved son of God. Jesus confounds them with his humility. 
that Jesus doesn't come and assert himself and say, now's the moment, I'm taking over everything. Even on the cross, he could have called down 10,000s of angels. And yet, Jesus breathes out a word of forgiveness for those who crucified him. Jesus is this kind of king. I'm going to skip, just for the sake of time, the Zechariah passage, and we're actually going to look at Philippians chapter 2, where we already were. Philippians chapter 2, back up just a little bit to verse 5. Paul says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say something to be grasped, something to be lunged after and held onto with your very last breath. Jesus doesn't do that with his divinity. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When God takes on flesh and lives among us, he comes as a servant and identifies with the lowliest of the low. I have been a believer my whole life, and I have read this passage 500 times. And not until just a couple of years ago did I understand what this is actually saying. There was something in me that believed that Jesus coming in John, I believe, chapter 8 or chapter 11, I forget, one of those passages in John where he bows down and washes the disciples' feet. There was something in me that thought, Jesus isn't doing this because it's who he is, but Jesus is just showing us how he wants us to act. Because if the church is actually going to take off and do anything in the world, we've got to learn how to live with one another. But friends, Jesus is God, and in God there is no inconsistency. Everything that God does flows from his character and his nature. God is incapable of putting on an act, of modeling something for us that is not true to his nature. Jesus serves not because he's showing us something good for us to do, but because that's who he is. That's actually who the Father has always been. Jesus comes to reveal to us who his Father has always been. When Jesus heals, it's because the presence of God is one who heals. Jesus comes to liberate because that's who God is. He's a God of freedom. He's a God of liberation. Jesus comes to serve because when Jesus comes to meet you, he doesn't come to control you or dominate you or coerce or manipulate you. Jesus comes to you in the need that you have right now. Jesus is coming to you to meet your need, to serve you, because he wouldn't have it any other way. Friends, this is a surprise, that Jesus comes as a humble king. Now, the other side of this is that Jesus does come as a king. 
Jesus comes as a king, and we see these clues. We see, for one, the thing with Jesus riding in on a colt or on a donkey. That's a kingly act. We see Jesus telling the disciples to go procure the donkey. That's a kingly act. But what we didn't see right up front was just the way that Jesus' kingship would manifest during this week. Jesus' humility does not make him passive or indifferent. It means that his acting is always serving our greater good. Jesus' acting is always to serve our deeper need. It's never acting in self-preservation. Jesus is never acting out of what is best for him, but always acting for what is best for you and for me. Jesus is also not interested in keeping false peace. In that Zechariah passage, which I didn't read, it says at the end of the passage that he comes to get rid of the war horse and to break the bow. Friends, Jesus fought the battle on his own for you and for me, but there was a real battle to be fought. And Jesus, in this story, begins the fighting of that battle the very next day. Right after Palm Sunday, he rides into the temple and cleanses the temple. This was also a surprise. The Jewish people are thinking Jesus is coming into the city to liberate us from Rome. But Jesus says, I, I care about your liberation, but I care much more about liberating you from the things that are in here, that are entangling you, that are wounding you, that are causing you to wound other people. The things that are happening out there, the oppression, those are things that actually begin in the hearts of men. And Jesus says, first, before I do anything about that, I'm going to my own people and I'm confronting the sinfulness that is in them first. And then he moves to the fig tree, that weird story where he curses the fig tree. So Jesus is confronting their unfaithfulness and then he confronts their unfruitfulness. You're not bearing the kind of fruit, my people, that you are called to be because you're not being the people that you're called to be. So Jesus' humility as king doesn't mean that he's passive or indifferent. He cares about anything that comes between you and the reign of God in your life. And it was that way 2,000 years ago, and it will be that way 2,000 years from now. There is nothing passive about Jesus. And friends, that is good news. That Jesus cares about the things in our lives that disrupt us that keep us from being his presence to the people around us, that keep us entangled in bondage to sin and to death. Jesus is the God who humbly comes to us, disrupting anything that stands between us and the real peace that he comes to bring. Seth, if you would come. The third surprise is that Jesus' crown comes, but by way of a cross. Jesus' crown will come. But it comes by way of a cross. He receives their praise as king in that moment. And we joined in the sound of those praises this morning, singing Hosanna, singing God come to save us. But only Jesus knows all that that is going to entail. Only Jesus knows that the way to save us ends up with him being dead on a cross. With most of his followers, by the way, having disowned him. Jesus knows this, but they do not. 
And Jesus' life was not saved from death, but saved through death. And thank God, because everything that Jesus went through, he redeemed, making it possible for us to experience the life of God in the things that you and I suffer. Paul in 1 Corinthians has this verse that is still confounding to me, where he says, The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, only a living God can conquer death by dying. Only a living God can liberate us by dying. Only a living, all-powerful God can heal us through wounds in the Son of God. This is the God that you and I serve. And the call this morning is that Jesus is who he says he is and so much more. And Jesus is still surprising us in the way that he shows up in our lives. But there is no way to follow Jesus without bearing a cross. He says this in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says to the disciples, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their life? What will people give in exchange for their lives? And so the question is posed to us this morning. Are we willing to bear our cross to follow Jesus? Because the promise is that there is a crown on the other side. There is a crown, but there is no way to come to that crown without going through a cross first. I'm going to read one verse, one more verse before we come to the table. This was not in the notes, but it comes from Romans chapter 8. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. There is a glory that is more beautiful, that is more peaceful, that is more fruitful than anything that we have ever experienced. And Jesus doesn't just call us his heirs, but we are actually co-heirs with Christ. That what God gives to Jesus, Jesus turns around and gives to us because we are co-heirs with him. But in order to be co-heirs with Christ, we must also carry our cross. Stand with me, if you would. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, I want us to pause for just a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to convict us, to speak to us, to heal us, to nudge us, to point to anything that he will point to that may be standing between us and the cross that we are called to bear. Holy Spirit, would you show us 
the ways that we are holding on and still resisting following Jesus. For some of us, it may be in a relationship. It may be with a sinful habit. It may be with the way that we spend our time or our money. Whatever that thing is, Holy Spirit, we ask that in this moment, you would put your loving, tender finger on it. And would you reveal the humble King, Jesus Christ, to that area of our lives. We say, yes, Lord, we want to be co-heirs and we want to follow even when it is difficult. But Holy Spirit, would you give us the grace and the power and the mercy to follow you? Friends, this is the table of the Lord where we remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood for our healing, for our freedom, and for our forgiveness. So as you prepare your hearts to come, would you be thinking, remembering the work of Jesus, that when he entered that city, only he knew what awaited him, and yet he still did it. And on the cross, in his last words, he's breathing out forgiveness, not revenge. So would you come to the table of the Lord? This is an open table for the family of God and those who are seeking Jesus, those who are saying, I may not be there yet, but I want to know more about this Jesus. You are welcome at this table because Jesus welcomes you at this table. So if you would exit out the left side of your rows, come forward, receive the elements, go back to your seats, and we will partake of the bread and the wine together. Come to the table of the Lord.